This is They Create Worlds, episode 101, Infocom. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. This is episode 101, after our great, wonderful 100 games review in three episodes. We are now back to business as usual. Wait, you mean 100 episodes wasn't the end of the podcast? No. Because I didn't plan any content past 100. I I thought we were going to, like, have a Viking funeral and it was done. You mean there's more? There's always more video game history, Alex. You should be very aware of that one. Well, uh, yes, uh, incredibly aware of that, considering that at this moment I'm supposed to be writing the second book in my three-part look at the history of the video game industry, because, yes, that's right, I am finally 100% completely, totally done with Volume 1. And then people get to have their grubby little hands on it and be all happy and excited. Yeah, proofs are done. I mean, they're still working on it. The target release is December, so it's not out yet at the time we record or at the time you listen to this, but it's turned in. It's done. The edits have been made, and it is completely out of my hands. So that's that's a, a little book update for y'all. But we did say at the end of our last episode that we are going to delve into a company that we wanted to go on a great adventure with, and that is Infocom. Infocom. That's right. And hopefully we do not get eaten by a Gru in the process. At least I have the lights on over here. I don't know about you. Well, yes, you know about me. We're we're looking at each other through webcams. You can see my lights. That's true. I can see the lights and he's also not being eaten by a Gru. That is correct. No one here is being eaten by a Gru. Yet. This may change. The episode has just started. We could lose power. Our lamp may have limited battery life. We don't know that it'll have enough battery life to get through an entire episode. At least we have this torch. So because we do have to be careful with our battery life, we're going to have to keep this moving, Jeff. And what that means is that in this particular episode, we're not going to focus a lot on most of the Infocom games. The good news is this is an ongoing podcast that hopes to last at least another 100 episodes. So we will come back around to the Infocom games and examine them in more detail at a later date. But for once, I actually do want to do a company history in a single episode. Odd concept, I know. So in this episode, we're going to kind of keep it to the kind of overall arc of the company, how they got started, how they rose, how they hit a great high, how they, and then how they fell spectacularly. So just kind of an overview of all of that history. And then at some later date, we'll look in more detail at some of the uh, creators and some of the games. That makes perfect sense there. So to start off with, these guys came together and really liked text adventure games way back in the 70s. Right. So the story of Infocom starts at MIT. Infocom is the other great contribution that MIT, well, I should say the second great contribution that MIT made to the history of the video game industry. The third great contribution would be Looking Glass Studios, which is a company that we will undoubtedly return to in the future. But the first great contribution 
of MIT to video game history was, of course, Space War. We spent a lot of time talking about that. The second contribution was Infocom and all of the stuff surrounding Infocom. And really, Infocom comes in large part from the same place as Space War did. And what I mean by that is MIT had quite the philosophy of student participation in computer projects and in computer exploration. Not just grad student participation, which in this time period was fairly common, but undergrad participation, which was very uncommon at this time period. We're talking about a time when computers were still not very widespread. By this time, many schools have computer science programs. They are teaching undergraduates how to use computers. MIT, it's still electrical engineering. They don't have a computer science department. But in electrical engineering, they are teaching computers to undergrads. What sets MIT apart, though, is that the fancy research projects allowed undergraduate students to participate just as fully and completely as graduate students if they showed the appropriate level of talent and the appropriate level of enthusiasm. Because, probably in part, they did not have a computer science department, they were also very happy to suck in talented individuals that were not actually even pursuing computer science as their primary degree, or even electrical engineering as their primary degree. Though, obviously, they were only sucking in people that were really good with the computers. They didn't care if that was your program or not. Now, we saw some of this in the Space War era already. During the Space War era, there were fewer computers at MIT, because we're talking a whole decade previous here. We're talking the beginning of the 1960s. Now we're talking about the early to mid-1970s, so a decade, decade and a half earlier is when Space War happened. So there were not that many computers at MIT at the time. So it wasn't so much that undergrads were heavily involved in computer projects then as they were just encouraged to experiment on the existing computers like the Tixo and the PDP-1. Of course, we've talked about all of that. We don't need to go into that again. But I just want to emphasize that there is a philosophical link here. And just like only at MIT could Space War have existed because of the way faculty encouraged student participation in computing, the same can be said in large part for Infocom and for Zork, that it's because of this permissive environment that this was allowed to happen. So I do want to go just very briefly into a little bit of MIT computer history to set the stage here. MIT in the 1950s became the home for the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, which was established by John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky, two very important people in the formulation of artificial intelligence research. In fact, John McCarthy is the person that came up with the term artificial intelligence or AI to identify this particular branch of computer research. So when we're talking about McCarthy and Minsky being big guys, these are really big guys. While he was doing his AI work at MIT before he moved on to Stanford, McCarthy started playing around with a different concept, the concept of time sharing. 
And of course, we've talked about timesharing. We did a whole episode on timesharing. I'm not going to re-explain all of that history, except to say that the concept of timesharing, we may recall, is that you have one computer, and that computer has all of its great big processing power and all of its great big memory. And rather than devoting all of that processing power and all of that memory to a single individual, we are going to parcel it out because a single individual is often idle while they're using the computer, which means they're not really engaging that computer every second they're on it. So while you're sitting there thinking, or even because computers are that fast, while you're sitting there typing in that little space between the moment you hit the key and the moment that appears on the screen and you hit the next key, that computer can be flying off someplace else and helping somebody else. So you're talking about parceling out computing power amongst dozens, hundreds, in extreme cases, even thousands of individuals at the same time. We remember timesharing, right? We'll throw a link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. So the very first practical usable timesharing system was created at MIT. We talked about that. But then in our timesharing episode, we kind of left MIT because MIT's timesharing activities after that weren't really important to what was going on in games. So we went off and talked about Dartmouth and Huntington Project and all of this other stuff. But now we need to come back to MIT, which we didn't talk about before. After the uh, compatible timesharing system, the CTSS, was completed, the existing computer science groups within MIT, within the Electrical Engineering Department, including the AI Lab, got together and started a new project called Project MAC, the Project on Mathematics and Computation, to create a really big, robust timesharing system. Because the first one, the CTSS, it was a very small system. It was a, essentially a feasibility prototype. Now they're going to go out and make the real thing. And so they established Project Mac. It runs for a long time. It runs for well over a decade, and it never quite comes together. This is not a history of Project Mac. We're not going to get into all of that. But Project Mac itself is essentially a failure, though things that happened within Project Mac became very important. Project Mac was one of the first places where video display terminals were put to use, CRT terminals. So they were very important in the evolution of CRT displays and CRT displays being used for computers. The biggest contribution of Project Mac is that they were working on an operating system. Time sharing is really where you first get the idea of operating systems. And I'm sure that I'm streamlining and oversimplifying and missing things here and there. But basically, you didn't really need an operating system until you were parceling out memory to multiple users because when the entire computer is being consumed by a single problem and a single user, all you need is a very basic monitoring program that says, okay, we're starting this problem, we're doing this problem, we're doing this problem, we're doing this problem, this problem's done, move on to the next problem. And we're doing it, we're doing it, we're done, next problem. That's all there is to it, batch processing. But now we're saying, okay, this sector of memory is being given to this user. This sector of memory is being given to this user. This sector of memory is being given to this peripheral, this terminal, or this printer, or this whatever. And now we have a complex memory management that's going on. And we have to make sure 
that the same block of memory is not being assigned to two users at the same time, because at that point, Mr. Computer is going to cry. Well, maybe not so much cry, ass, butter, and give a wonderful blue screen of death, and then the user starts cursing. Precisely. So this is really when you get the first operating systems going. You needed operating systems in order to do time sharing, because now you're managing memory and you're assigning memory to different things. So Project Mac was working on something that they called Multics. That was the operating system that was going to be at the heart of the Project Mac time sharing system. And they were working on this in conjunction with Bell Labs. Bell Labs was a partner in Project Mac. And then Bell Labs pulled out of Project Mac. And uh, some very smart guys there, led by Dennis Ritchie, decided that they were going to kind of create a version of Multics, but they were going to make it better. And so they created Unix. I'm greatly oversimplifying. Yes. But Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson end up doing the whole Unix thing. So that's probably the biggest thing that came out of Project Mac. For our purposes, that and the C programming language that was the heart of of Unix as well. So I'm skipping most of that history, but for our purposes, the important thing about Project Mac is as it eventually fell apart, the AI lab, the AI group, kind of got sick of the whole thing and pulled back out of it. Most of the rump that was left was reformed into an organization called the Laboratory for Computer Science. And it's at the Laboratory for Computer Science that we get our genesis for Infocom. This is the organization out of which Infocom spawns. There are a lot of different groups within the larger Laboratory of Computer Science, and they were working on a lot of different things. They were continuing a lot of the kind of time-sharing kind of research of Project Mac. So there was a lot of research into operating systems, programming languages, work with distributed systems, all of this kind of thing. They were still working on this kind of stuff. Within the Laboratory for Computer Science, there was a group called the Dynamic Modeling Group. And the Dynamic Modeling Group was the organization within which pretty much all of the early Infocom people were involved. The Dynamic Modeling Group was created primarily to work with real-time graphic experimentation and modular computer design and some of the early infrastructure stuff that would be necessary for the ARPANET. The head of the Laboratory of Computer Science, J.C.R. Licklider, one of the great luminaries in the development of the ARPANET and the development of what eventually became the Internet, kind of knew that stuff was coming because he was dialed into all of this. And so the Dynamic Modeling Group was really working primarily on a lot of that stuff, real-time stuff, networked stuff, really cutting-edge computer stuff. It was run by an individual named Alveza. Alveza was the head of the Dynamic Modeling Group, reporting to Licklider, who was in charge of the whole Laboratory for Computer Science. Veza was another Project Mac guy. He had actually done a lot of work on modem stuff at Project Mac. And when Project Mac was kind of falling apart, Veza was actually thinking of leaving MIT to 
go out into the world, as many other people were also doing as Project Mac fell apart. He was convinced to stay at the institution and kind of shuttled into this new organization that was forming up from the ashes of Project Mac. One of the more interesting things, there were a lot of interesting things going on in the dynamic modeling group, but one of the more interesting things that they did is they created a new high-level programming language called MDL, which was normally pronounced Muddle. Muddle was an artificial intelligence programming language. What I mean is it was a language that was designed to facilitate an artificial intelligence. So it could do things like multi-threaded expression, recursion, strings and arrays, all sorts of other stuff, some of which I understand, some of which I don't because I'm not a programmer. But the point is, it was really created as a kind of AI-focused language and as a high-level support language that could accommodate a lot of the different types of work that the dynamic modeling group was doing with real-time graphics, with time sharing, with ARPANET, etc. A guy named Chris Reeve was the primary individual who created it. There were a few other people that were supporting that, including some undergraduate students that would also become important to the Infocom story. Chris Reeve himself was very important to the Infocom story. Muddle was developed on a PDP-10 time-sharing computer. The PDP-10 was a mainframe. DAC, the company that created all the PDP computers, including the PDP-1 that Space War was on and the PDP-10 that we're talking about now, was primarily a mini-computer company, but they did at times also create bigger mainframe computers as well, and the PDP-10 was one of those. The PDP-10 was a fairly successful computer, uh, particularly at universities, because it did have a very good time-shared operating system, TOPS 10. A lot of the mainframe computer games of the 1970s that became very significant and then ended up on microcomputer platforms later on actually were created on PDP-10s in the 1970s, and that's just because they were pretty widespread at universities, they had a good time-sharing operating system, which meant that there were always lots of terminals lying around for people to connect in, and the PDP-10 was uh, one of the primary computers that the Dynamic Modeling Group was using and for which the Muddle programming language was developed. That's kind of the setting. And all of our people, all of our people that are important to the founding of Infocom are here. Chris Reeve, who we just talked about, who was very important on the back end of Infocom products, was working in this group. Stu Galley, who became one of the Infocom implementers, he was working in this group. Joel Berez who ends up being an important executive at the company, is in this group. And there's a foursome in this group that is particularly relevant to the beginning of this story. And that foursome is Tim Anderson, Bruce Daniels, Dave Lebling, and Mark Blank. Now, just to give you an idea of what I meant about the fact that anybody could be involved in this, Dave Lebling had been a political science major in college at MIT. But he fell into the, with the computer guys. He was interested in computer programming. It's just, in order to do computer stuff at MIT, like to get the degree, you had to be in electrical engineering. And Lebling had no interest and no skill and no desire and no bother with a soldering iron, with any of that hardware stuff. And soldering is hard. 
I myself, every time I actually touch one of them, it's almost obligatory that I burn myself. <laughs> right. So Dave Lebling was a guy that was never going to major in electrical engineering at MIT because he had no interest in the hardware side of things. But he was very interested in programming, and he was very good at programming. So he was part of this group, even though his degree was not, was not in computers. They take talent wherever they can find it. Some of the other guys were computer guys. Bruce Daniels, for instance, was a computer guy. Mark Blank was pre-med. He was going to go off and be a doctor. But again, this is a guy that was very interested in computers and very good at computer programming. So he was still allowed to be a part of this. And even as an undergraduate, he was making great contributions to what was going on in the lab. And if you're really good at doing pre-med stuff, you already have a good memory for all these little nitpicky details, that sort of science mindset. Exactly. It's crazy the amount of stuff in pre-med stuff, as Alex and I both know. Absolutely. So, you know, these guys were there, and games were a very big part of what was going on in the lab at the time, just as was the case in any computer lab around the country that had students uh, with pretty unfettered access to computers. Games were a big deal here. Of course, MIT was where Space War came from. Space War was still big on the MIT campus, and members of the Dynamic Modeling Group, including Dave Lebling, actually converted Space War to run on the PDP-10 that they had in the facility. Hunt the Wumpus, another important early game that we've talked about before, was converted to run on the PDP-10 at the facility. They also worked with a very interesting game called Maze, sometimes called Maze War, which was really the first first-person shooter and the first multiplayer deathmatch first-person shooter. It had been started out at uh, NASA Ames in California on an MLAX machine, which was very similar to a PDP-10 in many ways, but had a vector display as part of the standard equipment. Every MLAX had a, as far as I know, had that vector display. That was part of the appeal of the system as it was a graphical system. So a couple of students there, including Greg Thompson and Dave Colley, came up with a simple game where these two players could kind of move through a maze. The maze was kind of programmed in 2D, but in terms of the viewing of it, you viewed it in 3D, very much like an early dungeon crawl, like a wizardry or something like that. So they kind of fooled around with that there. And then Greg Thompson left NASA Ames and came to MIT, to the Laboratory for Computer Science. And he brought a ton of games with him that had been popular on the system in California. So he is not part of the Infocom story. He's not one of the founders of Infocom. But he brought this maze game, and then he and Dave Lebling further modified it so that it was a more massively multiplayer. I mean, not massively in the sense of dozens of people, but more than just two players could run around and shoot at each other uh, in this maze. So games were a very big part of what was going on at the Dynamic Modeling Group while they were, of course, doing their more official work as well. So it was in this environment that adventure hit. Colossal Cave Adventure, to be more specific. Exactly. Well, it goes by many names. Colossal Cave is one name, and people do uh, sometimes call it, particularly a lot of the old-timers call it Colossal Cave, so as to distinguish it from other adventure games. Particularly the Atari one, which gets conflated with these days. Right, exactly. So sure, uh, Colossal Cave Adventure, Adventure, Advent, Colossal Cave, 
many names, but the original adventure game, which should hopefully still be fresh in everyone's mind since we just talked about it on the previous episode in our top 20 of our top 100 games. Adventure conquered every single computer lab that it appeared in. MIT's Dynamic Modeling Group Laboratory for Computer Science was no different. When that thing hit, work basically ground to a halt until everyone could figure out how to solve that bloody program and get all of the points. All of them. One point was so obtuse and so hard to get, throwing away this, uh, there's this like newsletter or magazine you can pick up, and then you have to throw it away in this one room, throw it down a hole or whatever. That's worth a point, one single point. And so everyone had solved all the puzzles, gathered all the treasures, they thought they'd conquered the game, and there was still this one blasted point left. So somebody was actually able to get in there and went through all the code and figured out where that darn point was because they weren't going to stop until they got it. This captivated this group of people, and uh, some of them decided that they were going to make their own version of the game, because they loved it so much they wanted more. It started with Dave Lebling. Dave Lebling's the guy that kind of said, hey, you know, this was fun. Why don't we make something similar? We have this programming language, Muddle, that is already perfectly suited, perfectly, perfectly suited with its use of strings, and its use of user-defined data types, and all of this stuff, it is perfectly suited already to create kind of a space full of rooms and objects and using strings to have plain text commands and all of this stuff. We already have a language that's perfectly suited to this, and it's a powerful enough language that we can do this better. Because one of the main things that always has driven kind of the hacker scene, and this is still very much in the vein of the hacker scene, is they see something they like, but they don't just want to copy it. They want to improve it somehow. So Lebling was like, we can do this and we can make a great parser. Because the parser in the original adventure is a two-word parser. Noun, verb. Verb, noun. Get, lamp. Kill, dragon. That's all you can do. No adverbs, no adjectives, no prepositions, no other parts of speech. One verb, one noun. So he's like, you know, we can make a parser that's far more complex than that. We can be like, get all the apples in the room except the green apple. Or push the red button. Push the red button. Not the green button, you know, not the blue button, whatever. A more complex parser. So that was kind of part of it. And then they figured that they could make something pretty cool. So Dave Lebling got the ball rolling. He mocked up a very simple parser, you know, not the final version of it, but kind of a very simple parser. And he put together four rooms to go with it, just a little four-room dungeon that you could walk between. And then he ended up going on vacation for a little bit. While he was gone, his friends of the Achona 2, Tim Anderson, Mark Blank, and Bruce Daniels, they kind of went wild with it. So by the time Lebling came back from vacation, there was a fairly well-developed game in progress. It wasn't done yet, but they had a very developed game going. So they're all like, okay, well, we got this thing. Let's keep working on this and let's uh, share it around. And long story short, they created this game, Dungeon, which had this very big, sprawling, cavernous area, the Great Underground Empire, with all of these various locations, like a volcano and a space based on Alice in Wonderland, flood control dam number three, which uh, people know about, 
all of these kind of spaces that were all linked together, and they had puzzles in them, and you could solve these puzzles and gather treasure, because they're keeping it in the adventure vein. So adventure was about gathering treasure, exploring areas, solving puzzles, occasionally having to overcome antagonists like the thief, you know, collecting all the treasures and bringing them back to a starting point to win the game. So they're keeping that basic gameplay, but in a far bigger world with a far better parser with more developed interactions and developed puzzles, more developed puzzles, and even a little bit of light combat implementation. Dave Lebling was a D&D player. The other three guys were not. But Lebling had played D&D, so he was like, we should liven up the combat a little bit. And so he borrowed from D&D. It's still a pretty simple combat system, but there's actually some back and forth where you attack and do damage and they attack and do damage and so on and so forth, which is atypical in adventure games and certainly wasn't the case in adventure. There were antagonists, but you eliminated them with commands like kill dragon. But you didn't actually engage in any combat. So they made this big thing. Mark Blank and Tim Anderson did a lot of the room design and puzzle design. Bruce Daniels created a couple areas. Lebling created some stuff, but a lot of what he did was kind of make the prose better, improve on the prose that was there, or make the prose more purple, as the case may be. He kind of had a more literary bent than the rest of them, and so uh, he put a lot of his talent into that. And uh, they created this thing, uh, Dungeon, that was also kind of going by the name Zork already. Zork was kind of a nonsense word. We've talked about how MIT had its own special language. Stuff like hacker and cruft and tool to refer to somebody who is too straight-laced and obeys all the rules instead of having fun. Those were all created at MIT, and Zork was just a word floating around that kind of was a uh, word for a, a nonsense project, an unfinished project, just we've got a Zork going or we're Zorking this, I guess. I don't know exactly. but uh, So that name was floating around too, but it was officially called Dungeon. Basically what happened is there was a period of time in the late 70s, early 80s, where TSR got very, very, very litigious. And just about anything in a fantasy setting that had the words Dungeons or Dragons or Dungeons and Dragons in the name was liable to get sued or uh, any other property that they owned as well. Like TSR had created an obscure little game called Dragon Quest. So when Nintendo was bringing Enix's Dragon Quest over to the United States, they had to change the name to Dragon Warrior very famously because of TSR's litigious nature. They couldn't really keep it dungeon because they were very afraid that TSR would do something about that. So that word or that term Zork was already floating around. And that's how the game came to be called Zork. So you have to understand, this is just a fun side thing that they were doing. It was well-received, people played it, people liked it, but it wasn't exported anywhere because it was created in this Muddle programming language. Muddle was unique to the MIT environment, and specifically even the Laboratory Computer Science Dynamic Modeling Group environment. It's not like there was a Muddle interpreter that was widely disseminated, so it's not like you could send Zork all over the country because it ran in Muddle. On mainframes, it didn't become this big thing. It was just something that they did for fun, and it was interesting. Then it was done, (laughs) and they, they set that aside. So about this time, the dynamic modeling group is starting to break up. A lot of the graduate students that have been there for a long time are kind of reaching the end of their graduate student days, and they're moving on. Mark Blank is supposed to be a doctor. 
So he goes off to Pittsburgh to do residencies, go to medical school and do residencies and all of that. In fact, uh, I should say that Mark Blank had already left the Laboratory for Computer Science even as Zork was being created. A lot of the work that Mark Blank did on Zork, he did commuting, driving back from Pittsburgh to Cambridge to uh, work uh, evenings and weekends and holidays and whatnot on the program when he was supposed to be ostensibly learning to be a doctor in medical school. Joel Berez went back uh, coincidentally also to Pittsburgh because that's where his family was. His family had a business. He was going back to be part of the family business. Everyone's starting to break up. This is the period now, mid-70s, where a lot of funding from the Defense Department is drying up because in the wake of the Vietnam War and kind of the disaster there, there was a cutback in military spending and there was a refocusing on the way that military research funding was spent. It had to be more towards uh, specific practical goals. You had to be working towards a specific product more than just blue sky, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks kind of research, uh, which had been done before that, and which is oftentimes more valuable. Because if you're just going towards a set goal, you don't know what you might be missing. Whereas if you're doing more general research, you discover things you never knew were out there. So the group was breaking up. I mean, not literally going away, but it's just a lot of the people were leaving. And this didn't sit well with Alveza, uh, who you may recall is the professor that's in charge of this group. Al felt that they had a really great core of talent here. And he hated to see them scatter to the wind. So he decided that they should form a company that would keep them loosely affiliated in the private sector so that all this talent didn't just disperse. Now, this was going to be a small company. You have to understand, most of the people that were quote-unquote founders of Infocom did not actually work for the company as full-time employees at the start. Dave Lebling, for instance, who created some of the very important games throughout Infocom's history, he was not an employee of Infocom until 1984. company was founded in 1979. The initial conception of it was we're going to have this company that has just a couple of full-time employees, and then we're going to continue harnessing the talent of all of these people that we worked with at the Dynamic Modeling Group to do something. I use that word something very deliberately because they did not know what this was going to be. Zork has nothing to do with the founding of Infocom, not one single thing. They just knew we want to keep the group together and we want to do something together. They were thinking they would be contract programmers, maybe, but that didn't really appeal because these were people that took pride in the original work they had done at the DMG. And so just programming for other people didn't seem like fun. They were thinking, you know, uh, we could get involved in applications or something, but the computer industry was in a period of transition here. Microcomputers are just coming in. They couldn't quite get their heads around what they should do. Meanwhile, while this is all going on in Cambridge, Joel Perez and Mark Blank are hooking up with each other in Pittsburgh because they both coincidentally happen to be there. Mark Blank's going to medical school. Joel Perez is there because his family business is there and he's working with them. Well, Joel is not really enthused by the family business, and Mark is really not enthused by medical school. 
So they're getting together and they have meetings and they just, they're like, you know what might be kind of fun? What if we took that Zork game that we did and made it run on microcomputer platforms? Okay. Sure, that sounds fun. They started adapting Zork to be able to run on other platforms. Now, you have to understand that the microcomputer market at this time was incredibly fragmented. Those that have grown up in a PC or a PC-compatible world cannot truly appreciate what <laughs> we're saying here, that how fragmented it is. You may, if you go to your parents, say there's this war between Macs and PCs in the Windows side where they were separated, where code wouldn't work on one, and you had to specifically code for Mac and specifically code for PCs. And now that the ecosystem is more homogenized, stuff that can be coded can actually run on both as long as certain things are in place because the underlying hardware is the same. Exactly. Back in this day and age, (laughs) you had to specifically code for every single processor and everyone had their own special hardware out there to play with. And you had Commodore, you had PCs, you had these PDP things. And you had to just code for every single one. It's not like you could code in C on one system and you're pretty much done. You had to go in there and adapt it for every single hardware and change it rather drastically. This is why some of the earlier games were significantly different depending on the platform that you played them on. You played a game on the ZX Spectrum versus a PC compatible versus a Commodore. (laughs) You can have very different experiences on each of those systems. Exactly. And so Blank and Berez were kind of looking at the state of things out there, and they're like, well, okay, it would be fun as an exercise to put this on microcomputers. There's a bunch of them. I mean, even at this point that we're talking about, which is kind of in the 1979 time frame, you have the TRS-80, the Commodore PET, and the Apple II. And then you have even some lesser platforms that people don't really remember today, like the Exidy Sorcerer. How do you pick? And which one do you do? Well, it's not really clear which one's necessarily going to be the winner here. There's new computers being announced all the time. There's new software coming all the time. Well, we could make it for all of them. But, uh, you know, then you're doing it on all these different systems. You have to do it here, then do it here, then do it here. That's that's more work than we really want to do because this is a fun, hypothetical, technical exercise to kind of relive the glory days of the Dynamic Modeling Group. This isn't a commercial venture. The commercial venture, Infocom, is completely separate from all of this. I mean, not completely because Blank and Berez are in touch with some of the other people doing Infocom and are even founding members of Infocom. So it's not completely divorced. But the Zork thing has nothing to do with the Infocom thing. They're just like, Wouldn't it be great if we did this? Wouldn't that be fun? They're like, yeah, that would be fun. Then the question, though, becomes, if it's so complicated to do this, how do we go about this? And, oh, by the way, we wrote this game in Muddle, and Muddle is a thing that does not exist on microcomputers at all because it's its quirky little proprietary language that we did at MIT. So to solve that problem, they came up with a very, very interesting idea. What they decided to do was to create a whole new microcomputer language. Well, actually, I should say a whole new, not even microcomputer language, a whole new mainframe language derived from Muddle, which they named Zill. 
ZIL, which stood for Zork Implementation Language. They created a compiler for that language on the PDP-10, which they called Zilch. Presumably that is called Zork Implementation Compiler. Presumably, yes. It was derived from Muddle, but because Muddle was meant to do a lot of things, and Zill was really meant to just do this one thing, which was to create an adventure game, they could streamline it, optimize it, make it faster, make it more compact, make it perfectly suited to what they were doing. And then they're coding it once, and then they just have to tweak the compiler for each platform they want to put it on, and then just run it and compile it for each platform. Even better than that, what they did is they created a virtual machine. Way back in the day, a virtual machine. In 1979. Now, is this the first case of that? So it's not the first virtual machine. I don't know a lot about this area. I haven't researched it thoroughly, but virtual machines date back to at least the mid-1960s, and there had been a couple of implementations of virtual machines before the time that they had done this. So they got the virtual machine idea from elsewhere, but it certainly had not been widely applied on microcomputers, and it certainly had not been applied in the very limited computer game industry that existed up to that point. So they made a virtual machine called the Z-Machine. The Z-Machine could interpret the Zill language, could run the Zill language. And the virtual machine, you only had to tweak a little bit for each computer that you wanted to run that virtual machine on. You basically just had to tweak how you loaded that virtual machine into the memory of each computer, I guess, or whatever. So it would run Zill within the virtual machine, and then the virtual machine would interface with the actual computer platform, the Apple II, the TRS-80, the whatever else you're putting it on, and make sense of it for that computer so that it would run on that computer. And you have a lot more experience with virtual machines than I do, Jeff, so feel free to give a more cogent uh, explanation of that than I just did. Before that, we were saying that it was the Zill programming language but I believe what you mean to say is that it ran the compiled Zill code, the Zilch code, so to speak. That's correct. Yes, that's correct. It would run the compiled code. So they would write it in Zill, compile it. So it wouldn't interpret Zill. You take Zill, you compile it into whatever that compiled code is through the Zilch thing, and then the object and yes. executable is then run in the virtual machine. Yes. So for clarification for the previous bit. Absolutely. For a brief overview of how virtual machines work, you got your operating system that's doing its fun thing. A lot of virtual machines, it's almost like taking the operating system and abstracting it again, where you have an operating system that runs operating systems. And usually that operating system that runs operating systems is referred to typically as a hypervisor. It's really small. It's really compact. And really all it's doing is just saying, okay, which operating system is running in this time-sharing environment at this particular time, and we're sharing this all off. The reason that they do this is that, again, it's sort of like with time-sharing where we have this hardware that is way, way capable of doing all this kind of things, and we're just waiting for user input, waiting for this, waiting for that. It gets to the point with operating systems where the operating system just sitting there doing nothing because I code this software to run this, 
then that software expects to have all the resources of some type or whatever. Or I want to run different operating systems on the same hardware, so on and so forth. And the reasons you might want to do that is software incompatibility with certain things. You want to have the ability to keep certain software running while being able to take other software down, especially on server platforms. Or you just want to take this really expensive, very capable server and then share its very extensive hardware capabilities amongst all of this stuff. But you can't just throw that to one operating system because a lot of operating systems aren't necessarily coded with the idea of, what do you mean I have 20 processors and three terabytes (laughs) of RAM? I don't even know how to properly utilize that with all of the software that I'm running. I will throw into the show notes a uh, better and more detailed explanation on how virtual machines work if you're interested in going down that rabbit hole. Absolutely. So the virtual machine was great because it allowed them to create their games on a very powerful PDP-10 and then filter that down so that it could run on any microcomputer platform they wanted it to, so long as that microcomputer platform had enough memory to run the programs. Now, memory was rather scarce on 1970s microcomputers. That's because it's very, very expensive to make. So the original Zork consumed one megabyte of memory. Oh no, a whole megabyte? How could my terabyte systems handle that now? I know, we practically send emails that are bigger than that. (laughs) Not quite, but uh, I mean, there are emails bigger than that with attachments and whatnot. But a megabyte just seems like so little today. A megabyte was a humongous amount of memory. You measured microcomputer memory in kilobytes. Most computers in those very early days had either 8 or 16K of memory. If you were a big spender, you might get 32K of memory. And if you were using the latest fancy pants machines, you might have 48K of memory. That's rather far away from one megabyte. Just a little bit. Yeah. We're talking computer megabytes here where it's not how we think of it. It's a base two number, not a straight up base 10 number. Right. So so megabytes, 1,024 kilobytes. And we're nowhere near that with our 48K computers. And our 48K computers are rare. Most people are in 16K. They do decide that they're just going to take a portion of the game. They obviously have to break the game up. They can't do the entirety of Zork, the entirety of Dungeon, as a single microcomputer game. They decide they're going to break it up. They do get some efficiencies, because since Zill is more efficient for creating adventure games than Muddle is, the program does take up less memory just by virtue of... Optimization. Being more efficient. Optimization. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Just through the virtue of optimization. So when this is all said and done, they are able to get their program down to a very miserly, very tiny, very minuscule 77K. Woohoo! But the computers of the day are usually running 16 to 32K. Well, we don't have to have it all loaded into RAM at once, right? Well, no. Now that you mention it, we don't necessarily. And you know what? We can even have more RAM floating around than our computer physically has. Because the other big thing they did besides building a virtual machine is implementing virtual memory. RAM disks. (laughs) 
Tell the people about virtual memory, Jeff. Okay, virtual memory is where I say, I have more memory than you really have. How do I do this? I say, you have this much RAM that you can use that's real. And then we have virtual memory that we just load things on. And it's fake. It's over here. And we're going to use this hard drive as RAM. It's really slow. And we only put things on there that we know is going to be slow to access or slow to load. But we'll just use it over there. And it will just sort of be in prep space. And then when we need it, we can just move it from there over into active RAM and play around with it for a bit. And then uh, stuff we're not using, we can unload and throw back over on that hard drive. And yay! We fake it. And this is why DOS games back in the day were a freaking nightmare because you had to play a lot of games and not fun game, like games of, I need to trick DOS in different entertaining ways to load games. And we had such fun things like getting HiMem.sys to behave properly. Older people like us are going to shudder when I said that. (laughs) So, of course, the early computers did not have hard drives. So their implementation was simpler than what you would do on a PC and simpler in some ways than what Jeff described. But basically, you know, they had to use the floppy disk. But other than that, it's it's the same idea. They made sure to segregate and segment all of the dynamically updating parts of the game into one part of the computer program, all blocked together in the program. Stuff like updating the player's location, which items the player has, which items are still in the dungeon, etc., etc. That dynamic data they made sure was always loaded into RAM. Anything else, text descriptions of rooms and descriptions of inventory items and all of this kind of stuff, a lot of the text stuff, they swapped in and out of RAM in blocks from the disk into the RAM. As long as the computer did not have to access a particular block of information at a given time, the computer never realizes that that thing that it accessed 10 minutes ago is no longer there. And it just goes on oblivious and keeps chugging along until it finally tries to access something that isn't there and, and then the computer cries again. Yeah, they used a virtual memory system to get that down even further. So this was the basis of Zork and the basis of everything else that Infocom did through its entire history. The Zill programming language on the PDP-10, the Zill compiler that compiled anything that they did in the programming language, and then the Z machine virtual machine that could run that compiled Zill code on any computer. And then you just had to make very minor modifications to the Z machine to make it run on all these different computers. So that was pretty revolutionary for the time, particularly in computer games. Again, virtual machines and virtual memory were not new, but in this context, they hadn't really been used before. So Blank and Berez do this thing, and it's great, and everybody loves it. So the Infocom people are like, well, we don't know what we're doing yet, so let's just go ahead and put out Zork. That's fine. We'll put out Zork, and that can be our first product, and, you know, that'll make us some money while we're thinking about what we're really going to do. That makes sense. Yeah. So. They connect with a company called Personal Software. Personal Software was formed by other MIT people. Notably, Dan Filster was an MIT student. And Personal Software was kind of the leading publisher of stuff at this time. There's not really a big microcomputer software publishing industry yet. 
because businesses haven't really gotten onto microcomputers yet in a big way, so you don't need complex application software. There are word processing programs and stuff that people have made, but it's, it's more hobbyist. And hacker types, hobbyist types, they like creating their own programs and sharing those programs around. So people are trading software at user clubs. They're doing type-in listings for magazines. A couple of people here and there are selling a program or two, but there's not much of an industry yet. But Personal Software is one of the first companies that really is making a name for itself in computer software. They had a big hit with a chess program called MicroChess. Just at the same time that they are being approached by Infocom, they have just started putting out this little thing called VisiCalc, which we've talked about before, the first spreadsheet program. So they hook up and they decide to do the game together, and yay, that's fun. Personal Software is actually the company that releases Zork. It comes out for the TRS-80 first. The TRS-80 was the most widespread computer at this time, so they had gotten that version done kind of first. But they got an Apple II version up and running pretty soon after, so it comes out on Apple II pretty darn quickly after it comes out on TRS-80. It becomes pretty successful in terms of the industry at the time. There isn't much industry at the time, but in terms of whatever's out there, it becomes a pretty successful thing. Infocom's up and running, and they basically decide to pivot into actually doing games. It's like, well, we've done Zork 1, which they you know cut off a chunk of the original Zork and released it. So, I mean, we got to do Zork 2 now, especially since this is so uh, successful. And we've gone to all the effort to create this virtual machine and this programming language. So we can riff on this and make all sorts of other different types of games, not just fantasy games, but sci-fi and mystery and whatever else we want. They never get around to doing something else. At that point, Infocom becomes a game company. They sort of just fell into it as opposed to saying... We are now a game company, Sally Forth people. That's right. They really did just fall into it. It was a series of remarkable coincidences in a way that got them there. But very quickly, the deal with personal software kind of sours. Personal software does the first Zork, releases it. It does pretty well. But like I said, this is the same time they're releasing VisiCalc. VisiCalc does more than just a little well. It is huge. Once VisiCalc takes off, personal software kind of reorients itself to be this company serving businesses. All of this other stuff that they were doing on the side almost becomes an embarrassment to the company. They want to be seen as a serious business company. So they kind of drop the game stuff. Personal software stops doing games. So they cut Zork loose. They give the rights to the original Zork back to Infocom, and they're like, we don't really want to do this anymore. So Zork goes back to Infocom, and Infocom becomes its own publisher. It actually starts publishing its own games at that point and becomes a computer game publisher in its own right. Again, it's small in these first years. Joel Berez becomes the president of the company in November 1979. He wasn't the original president. A guy named Mike Bruce was very briefly president. Then he stepped down, and Joel Berez becomes president and runs the company. And Joel Berez is basically the only full-time employee. He has a small, single office. Everybody else is uh, part-time or contractor or whatever else. But the company begins to grow, and the products are successful. Zork 1 sells hundreds of thousands of copies. Zork 2, Zork 3 don't sell quite as many, but they do okay. Some of the others 
like Deadline, Mystery Game, do very well. Uh, the company grows. They are able to hire in more people to create more games, and it just has this kind of snowball effect. And they become far and away the leader in text adventures because the products from competing companies, particularly Scott Adams Adventure International, are just not as sophisticated because using that Zill as a base and using a virtual machine just allows their products to blow any other products away. And the other thing that they do that's very interesting is they do testing very early on. They're doing QA before QA is really a recognized thing in video games, in computer games. They have a couple of testers that run through and make sure everything makes sense and that the puzzles are at least fair enough. I'm not saying every Infocom game was fair or every Infocom puzzle was fair, but they created games that were bug-free. They created games that were relatively reasonable compared to other products at the time in the way that you could move through them. They had very talented implementers. Dave Lebling was a very good writer. Mark Blank was a great programmer that loved pushing the bounds of things. His deadline was remarkable, a murder mystery game where you have a bunch of individual characters that are actually moving around this world and have their own agendas that you're interacting with as you try to solve the mystery. They hired a guy named Mike Berlin, who was an actual author. So he was a good writer, and he came in and did some interesting games. You see, the other great thing about how they set this up with the programming language and, and the Z machine and everything is you had your technical guys maintaining the system, but doing things in the system, a lot of it was just plain scripting because all of the adventure game functions were kind of hard-coded. You didn't have to program how to display a room or how to display an object or how to describe uh, something or generate text. All the programming was done, and it was basically just a matter of scripting. So they could bring in people that were decent writers or decent creative people and teach them how to do the scripting and how to do the very rudimentary programming that they had to do to get something on the screen and let them go to town. So they could focus on hiring creative talents instead of hiring technical talents. They hire technical talents as well, of course, but if you were a creative, you didn't have to know all that technical stuff to make use of the system, if that makes sense. It does. And it allows a good way of having a level of abstraction that is very akin to how things are done now, where you have people who work on the game engine that would be akin to the people who worked on the Z machine and the compiler itself. And then you have people who work on the game design and the actual gameplay. And that's the people who learned how to do the scripting in order to just have a room like this and this other thing and this kind of puzzle and the engine doesn't quite do that. So I'll tell these guys, Hey, could you add the capability to do this? Mm -hmm. So they were doing this division of labor before it was common to do this division of labor. This was a period of time when you still generally had one programmer, designer, artist, even who often didn't even have a separate artist. So this was a period of time when there was not that kind of division, but Infocom was able to do that kind of division. Now, each game was solely the product of a single designer, which they called implementors. So each game was still a one-man job. It's just that one man did not have to be super-duper knowledgeable about computer programming to make it all work. You know, talking about the larger industry, this was a period of time when the computers were still very primitive, where doing fast-paced graphical stuff was not often very possible on microcomputer platforms. 
even after that started becoming more possible as computer memories expanded and computer programmers became more well-versed in using these systems, you had the crash happen in the consumer market and in the arcade market. That crash affected the computer game industry as well in the sense that there was less of a desire for fast-paced action games. A lot of the younger crowd and a lot of the arcade crowd just kind of turned away from computers entirely, and you were kind of left with a slightly older, I'm talking teens, early 20s, maybe even mid-20s kind of crowd that was a slightly more cerebral crowd as well. So Infocom was releasing these text adventures at the time when the microcomputer audience in the United States was a little older and a little more cerebral and liked this puzzle-solving and exploration stuff. And at a time when you couldn't really do sophisticated graphics. So just kind of that internal imagining things based on a description was very appealing. That allowed the company to become very successful in the early 1980s. They had several hundred thousand sellers. They had a couple even bigger. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy did 250,000 units. Zork 1 ultimately did 500,000 units, which was just nuts in the context of the time. Because the games could be ported easily, they ran on a lot of different systems. There were a few systems they couldn't quite reach just because the memories were too paltry. But they could port them to a lot of systems, and they were able to curate a collection in such a way that they were able to keep older titles on store shelves and have them keep selling even as newer titles came in. They kind of went with a system of making computer stores and others that were buying these games buy broadly from the whole catalog and not allow really returns of the product, which meant that all the games continued to be stocked. And since there weren't graphics, the games became more sophisticated over time in some ways based on the designers becoming better and implementing maybe cleverer puzzles or different types of puzzles. It's not that the games didn't evolve and some of the games even got quite literary in their sophistication as well. But Zork was still fundamentally very similar to Hitchhiker's Guide or Suspended or Planetfall or these games that were coming out later, even if they weren't exactly the same. You didn't get that same obsolescence that you get with a graphical game where after two or three years, your games look dated. It's just text, so there's nothing to look dated, (laughs) right? Arguably, yeah. Or I go in there and I go, hey, I really enjoyed that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game. I want more of that. What else has this company put out? Oh, Zork? Never heard of that. Let's try that and see how I like it. A little simpler than Hitchhiker's Guide, but still enjoyable. Sure. So it kind of feeds on itself. They do a good job of marketing the product. They have a newsletter, the New Zork Times, that they send out that keeps people interested. They do the Invisiclues line of hint books. Because, of course, with games like this, there are some people that are finally just like, just tell me the solution already, I want to move on. And you didn't have the internet and walkthroughs back then, so you had to get your solutions in print. But what they did was very clever. They did something called Invisiclues, where they put the clues in invisible ink. So if you finally got stumped, you could just reveal uh, you know, a single clue using the invisible ink pen and not have other stuff spoiled. So the Invisiclues were very popular. They built a very robust 
operation. It was never going to be one of the biggest in the industries. It was never a Broderbund. It was never an electronic arts, just in terms of its the overall amount of money it was raking in. But it became something like a $10 million a year company, and that's nothing to sneeze at. But it was only really popular in the 80s, from what I understand. Exactly. And really, if we're putting a, a fine point on it, it was really only popular in the early to mid-1980s. 1984 was kind of the high point for the company. After that began the long, slow decline. And there were a couple of things going on there. One of them was just that graphical games were becoming more and more sophisticated. In 1984, Sierra released King's Quest. And King's Quest, as we talked about before, was an animated cartoon on your computer. Yeah, if you look at an Apple II King's Quest released for 1984 today, it looks really pixelated and primitive. But in the context of the times, that was like mind-blowing stuff. There's always a bigger audience. Just like the movie industry makes more money than the book industry does. Graphical stuff is always going to make more money than text stuff, even if there's always going to be this dedicated core fan base that prefers the one to the other. I mean, this is kind of especially true in something like video games, because a book is a book. A book doesn't have a screen in it. A book is pages. And I know we have ebooks today. That's fine. For the analogy I'm making, I'm just saying in the 1980s, if you bought a book, you bought something on paper that you were meant to just read text on. It didn't have a screen embedded in it. When you buy a computer, it has a monitor. Having a monitor implies that maybe you should have some pretty pictures on your monitor, that it not all just be text. So it's kind of the medium lends itself to prioritizing graphics over just plain text as well. That's one part of it. But the other real part of it is it was never meant to be a game company. Obviously, the games became huge. But there were still people on the board, most notably Alveza, our good friend Alveza, who had kind of got the ball rolling on this whole thing in the first place, that were like, okay, it's great that we did this game thing, but this is a really volatile market. There's lots of booms and busts in this industry. And this is never really where we meant to be in the first place. We didn't form this company to be a game company. Isn't it about time that we return to what we were originally supposed to be doing? Okay, fine. What do you want to do, Al? Well, why don't we take all of this knowledge that we've uh, put together on programming languages and easy portability, etc., etc., and create a database program? Databases were already around. They were nothing new. I mean, they'd been around on mainframe computers. But a database is uh, a particularly sophisticated kind of program. It takes some real programming talent to put that all together. Because they have this ability for portability, they have this capability to come in and say, okay, we'll make a database that is easily portable between multiple systems so that you can share your stuff amongst multiple computer models and all of that kind of stuff. Why don't we make a database program? That'll be fun. Okay. So now we need some venture capital to fund this other side of the business because that's going to be an expensive proposition and the game revenue is being reinvested in the games. So. We're going to need an outside source of funding for that. You know, our guy Berez, Joe Berez, this is the first time he's ever managed anything. Venture capital firms aren't going to find him to be all of that compelling as the kind of person they can trust to put their money behind. Let's have you, Al. Let's have Alveza come in 
and become the new CEO because he was at MIT. He managed large groups at MIT. He has broader experience in venture capitalists like officers that they know are going to run the company well and have a track record. So Alvesa comes in, becomes the new CEO of the company. Joel Perez doesn't leave. It's just Alves is now over him. They get some venture funding. They establish a new division to create this database project uh, program, Cornerstone. And we all use Cornerstone today. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it was a mess. It cost way more to put together than they thought it would. By the time Cornerstone comes out, the fact that you can port it to multiple systems doesn't matter anymore because by this time the PC has consolidated its hold on the business world and you don't need a widely portable database. Cornerstone ends up siphoning away a lot of money from the games division just at the time that the games people really need to be researching how do we update our system so that it incorporates maybe some graphics or some sound effects or some other things that can make our games more appealing in the modern world. They can't really invest the R&D that they need to come up with a a new system because all their money's being sucked over to the other side of the business. Now, they did wait too long to start exploring graphics in an update. They kind of got used to this idea that they could run on all of these different computers, and so they wanted to keep that backwards compatibility, and that was a great impediment to kind of updating the system because if they updated it to make it more sophisticated, they'd have to leave some computer systems behind that just didn't have enough memory. Now, they eventually did. They updated this it to 128K programs, and then they later updated it to 256K programs, which necessitated that they leave behind old systems, but they were kind of hesitant and slow to do that. And then by the time they started thinking maybe we should do this, then they didn't have the money to do it because Cornerstone had sucked a lot of the money out of the company. They were kind of in a quandary. The company was not doing well. The company was losing money. They needed to get bailed out, essentially. So enter the great white knight, Activision. I think in current climates, we don't view that as a white knight. (laughs) Right. Activision at this time was still run by the original CEO, Jim Levy. Jim Levy was not a technical guy, but Jim Levy was a great believer in the idea of computer games being an art form and computer games being something special and something that you want to put a lot of creativity behind. Activision was struggling because they were trying to move away from their console roots and transition into the computer stuff. We talked about Activision in this very painful process they went to in a couple of Activision episodes. By this time, 1986, they've successfully transitioned to computer platforms in the sense that they are not focusing their primary effort on consoles anymore. But a lot of their design capability and sensibility is still kind of stuck in that console era. They still have a lot of guys that cut their teeth on consoles and are really good at kind of the gameplay side of things, but maybe aren't as strong at narrative or storytelling or this kind of thing. They've made some more artsy games, and we talked about that, how Jim Levy really wanted to push the artistic side, the creative side of the company. And those more artistic endeavors that they had done, things like Alter Ego, really hadn't done all of that well. 
And so Levy targeted Infocom as a company that was very good at the creative side of things, but had fallen behind on the technology and on the gameplay side. What Jim Levy told me his plan was, because I did interview him, was that he had hoped to merge that Infocom design sensibility with the Activision technical and and gameplay capability to create something that was both interesting from a technical and gameplay side and interesting from a creative literary side at the same time. The way he says it to me, he really did kind of plan to integrate the companies. He didn't plan to leave Infocom out on its own, still pumping out text adventures, because by this time the text adventure market really was falling apart. Now, how much of that was true at the time and how much of that is him rationalizing after the fact, I couldn't tell you, but that's Levy's version of the story. Then, of course, Jim Levy was fired because the company had had 16 consecutive quarters of losses and the board was just fed up waiting for a turnaround that was always just around the corner but never actually happened. So instead of Jim Levy being the guy to shepherd through the integration of these two companies, it ended up being his successor, Bruce Davis. We've talked about this dynamic. We've talked about how Bruce Davis was a different kind of guy than Jim Levy, that he was very much about trying to return a consistent profit on product, that he would rather have a bunch of competently made but not particularly impressive software that was making the company money than bet the farm on really creative things, and maybe you get a big hit and maybe you get a big disaster. Also, I don't know if Jim Levy shared his plans for integration of Infocom with Bruce before he was let go, but certainly Bruce never tried to integrate the companies. He saw Infocom as kind of being the story-driven game division of the company, and so he pushed some projects into the Infocom brand that came from outside the company, and he never really tried to integrate the company with what was going on back in California. It was kind of its own separate thing. Also, Infocom was in worse shape than Activision realized. Activision didn't really understand what they were getting into because the company was in really bad financial shape. In Bruce Davis's opinion, the company had misrepresented just how bad things were at the company at the time of the purchase, and that's actionable as a legal matter. So Bruce Davis actually sued Infocom, his own subsidiary, and members of the old Infocom board, basically saying that you misrepresented your value when we purchased you, and if we had known what was really going on, we would have never spent so much money on you. So that created a great deal of acrimony, and maybe Bruce Davis was right, maybe Bruce Davis was wrong, I don't know, but obviously he's been portrayed as the great villain as a result of this, and to some degree, understandably so. But he felt that he had a duty to the shareholders to recoup some of that value. Now, should that duty to the shareholders trump trying to keep the company in relatively good spirits and keep them productive for you? I I don't know. I mean, these are complex questions. I'm just saying just painting him as the cold-hearted villain is a bit reductive. The story is always more complex than that. I will say that Bruce Davis really did try to turn the company around. He sent an executive named Joey Barra out there who had come over from EA. I've interviewed Joey Barra as well, and Joe was not sent to Cambridge to be the hatchet man. He was sent out there to evaluate and try to turn around the company, and he's the one that actually made the recommendation 
that he felt it was unsalvageable and they should close it down. Now, as I understand it, at the time of Infocom's purchase, they had something around 100 employees. And then at this point in time, they roughly cut it in half. Yeah, I mean, they had to lay off a lot of people. They had just moved into a big new office space, and then they couldn't really populate that office space anymore. They were going through bad times. Some of what happened was the fault of both sides. So one thing that was a little bit Activision's fault is Activision did have a return policy with retailers. Activision absolutely had to have a return policy with retailers because they were still living through the disaster that was the video game crash. They still had not regained a footing with retailers and distributors on product. They were still, you know, I talked to not just Bruce Davis, but also Stan Roach, who was head of sales and marketing in this time period. And even four or five years later, Activision was still paying a price with retailers for all of that product that those retailers could not sell when the video game market crashed. So retailers really had Activision over a barrel and they were able to get more favorable turns out of Activision. And so Activision had a return policy and allowed companies to return software to them, which, like I said, I mean, they had to. They almost didn't have a choice. But once Infocom became part of the Activision family, that return policy then, of course, applied to Infocom as well. So all of those catalog titles that had been on the shelves for years and continued to sell modestly, not greatly, but to sell modestly, were just swept aside. You know, they were returned. The retailers did not stock old Infocom product anymore, and they were no longer interested in stocking new Infocom product for an extended period of time. You know, the industry is becoming more hits-driven, so they're not going to keep slow-selling Infocom product on the store shelves for six months. They're going to return what doesn't sell, and they're allowed to return that now because of the new uh, policies that come from Activision. So that hurt, but Infocom also shot itself in the foot because I guess to ingratiate themselves with their new overlords, and this is pre-Bruce Davis, this is 1986 when Jim Levy was still in charge of the company, they really upped their release schedule, like by a lot. Like instead of releasing two or three games in a year, releasing like six games in a year. And that wasn't an Activision idea. This is something that Infocom did independently. It's a little hazy. I'm not exactly certain. There's still some people I definitely need to talk to on the Infocom side. It was probably a little of both. It was probably Activision saying, you know, it would be great if you could release a few more games combined with Infocom wanting to please their new overlords and not pushing back against it. I think it's probably a little bit of both. As far as I know, it wasn't a mandate. Like you must release X number of games this year. I could be wrong, but my understanding is it wasn't a strict mandate. It was more complicated than that. They spread themselves too thin. They have hired more implementers by this point. They have a few people on staff, but to create a really good adventure game takes time because you have to think through the puzzles, you have to think through the flow, you have to do extensive testing, not just QA testing, but also testing to make sure that puzzles work well, have logical solutions, all of this kind of stuff. You don't have zombie states. Right. Those zombie states were very common back then. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're trying to make something that's a good product. And so when they upped the number of releases, it stretched their resources to the limit. They couldn't spend as much time on quality assurance and playtesting of the games, and the games suffered as a result. They just ended up cannibalizing their own sales because 
by this time, there are only a finite number of people that are actually adventure game players. If you have a finite pool of people, and that finite pool of people is only going to buy one or two adventure games a year, when you release six games in a year instead, what that means is each of them sells like a third as many copies because your audience is buying the same number of games, but they're just distributing those purchases amongst more products. Your customer still just buys two adventure games. They don't up that to four adventure games just because you've released six games. So they have a massive per-game sales decline in this period. Back in the day, I mean, you know, 50,000 was easy, 100,000 a lot of games reached, and 250,000 wasn't outside the realm of possibility for the most popular product. Now we're talking about typical games going to sell 30,000. A typical game's going to sell 20,000. You're not going to get a good return on investment. Yeah, those numbers are just not sustainable. Part of that's because the medium's dying, but part of it's just because they're spreading themselves too thin and the games just aren't as good, quite frankly. It's a combination of factors. I mean, certainly Activision did things that didn't help. It certainly didn't help that Bruce Davis happened to become CEO and Bruce Davis wasn't as invested in Infocom as a concept. Now, he wasn't out to destroy them. You you talk to some Infocom people and they kind of get the sense that Bruce Davis was out to destroy them. And I don't think that's a fair reading of the situation. But it is definitely true that Levy was legitimately interested in Infocom as a company. And Bruce Davis, I'm sure, saw it more in terms of dollar figures and returns on investment than he did look at the talent potential. It's definitely true that he didn't understand the allure of the Infocom back catalog, that there was a dedicated core of people that was very interested in Infocom properties. So that part of it is on Bruce. Because, uh, you know, spoiler alert, when Activision is taken over by Bobby Kotick, Kotick re-releases all of the old classic Infocom games in a compilation called The Lost Treasures of Infocom. And that product sells well enough that it brings in some of the much-needed revenue that the company needs while it's getting back on its feet after the bankruptcy. So they could have released the Lost Treasures of Infocom when Bruce Davis was in charge of the company. And, and so it's, it's fair to say that Bruce didn't understand that part of it. Just because you don't understand the business, though, doesn't mean that you're, like, actively sabotaging the business. I mean, there is a difference. Never attribute malice where incompetence can suffice. <laughs> right. And like I said, I mean, of course, Bruce Davis, when I talked to him, said that he wanted the Infocom guys to succeed. What's he going to say? But like I said, I also talked to Joe Ibarra. And Joe Ibarra was pretty clear that he was not sent out there to pull the plug. Bruce Davis was still hoping he might be able to save it. And he made the decision to pull the plug because he just couldn't see how it could work anymore. It wasn't malice aforethought. But on the other hand, Infocom clung to its old technology too long. It did not advance the medium technologically in the ways that it needed to in order for the medium to garner a bigger audience at a time when the whole industry was growing and you needed some hits to continue. And they spread themselves too thin and released too many games, which was something that they could have at the very least fought against more and didn't. Both sides contributed to the downfall of the company. It's more complicated than just saying Bruce Davis didn't like the company, Bruce Davis didn't understand the company, Bruce Davis killed the company. So in 1989, Infocom is shut down. 
Some of the remaining employees are given an offer to move out to California to Mountain View to stay with the company. But these are MIT people. They're Cambridge people. They don't want to do that. That's basically when the whole thing disintegrates. The Infocom games, as I said, continue to have some resonance. The Lost Treasures of Infocom does well. And there's even Zork games created by Activision later. In the mid-1990s, there's actually a movement by hobbyists and hackers to reverse-engineer Zill and the Z-Machine. So there becomes an underground kind of indie interactive fiction community that uses Zill as its base. And this is never a a commercial venture, a serious commercial kind of venture. It never has more than a, a handful of dedicated adherents compared to the vast world of computer gaming and video gaming in general. But Zill continues to be used by this kind of hobbyist enthusiast text adventure community to make new text adventures all the way into the 2010s. The legacy of Infocom and the legacy of the Infocom technology lasts in a small way for decades after the the company itself goes away. And presumably it's still going on now. I imagine there's still people who still use this. A little bit, but the community as a whole has evolved to even better Mm -hmm. parsers now. Zill was great for its time, but it's not like there was something that made Zill so amazing that you would keep working in Zill forever. I mean, you know, better stuff comes along. It's still out there. People still kind of tinker with it a little bit, but the wider international fiction community has moved on. Also, from what I understand, when you went out previously here at the beginning of October and of September, You went back east to the Smithsonian and actually interviewed a lot of these people who were influential in a lot of these early text adventures. Well, but just one from Infocom. We did Dave Lebling was the only one we did from Infocom. The others were not Infocom people. But yeah, I mean, it's a very important company with a very important legacy. They were one of the first companies to show that you could have a viable computer game software publisher. I mean, they were very early on that front. They promulgated, popularized this concept of adventure games, of text adventure games on microcomputer platforms. And so, of course, even graphical stuff owes a debt of gratitude to them priming that market. You know, they had a good run in their time. Some really interesting, really thought-provoking games. Like I said, we, we're not really covering the games in this episode, but they're out there. So we kind of rushed through some stuff. We condensed some stuff. Yeah, I really just wanted to kind of emphasize, you know, the rise of the company and the fall of the company in this episode. And so that's kind of the overall trajectory of Infocom. And at some point in the future, we will examine some of that in a lot more detail, not immediately in the next episode. That's just kind of an overview of how this thing came together almost by accident, had a few years in the sun, and then kind of just slowly declined away into nothing. Sort of a falling arc of Infocom. Yep. So I guess that leads us with what our next subject will be in episode 102. So we've spent a lot of time on computer games and computers recently. We did Epics, we did IBM, we did Bookware, we've done Infocom, we've done a lot. We did 100 games. Yes. Well, I mean, that's everywhere. But I mean, in the non-100 games episodes, we've touched on computers a lot. So it's probably time to get away from computers for a little bit again. And let's return to the arcade. We've talked about some of the big companies in the golden age of arcades. 
One that we haven't really talked about yet is Stern Electronics. Stern Electronics is not as big as Atari Bally or Midway, which we've talked about at length at this point. But at the height of the uh, golden age of arcade games, they were still one of the top five arcade manufacturers or coin-op manufacturers in the business. Of course, they have a legacy that still exists to this present day. Stern Pinball is not the same company, but it is the same person. It's a company that has a legacy that even outlives its actual period of existence. So, uh, yeah, let's return to the arcade and have ourselves a look at good old Stern Electronics. We will investigate Stern next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Volum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 